Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our new series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2, with a message entitled, The Wrath of the Lamb. So let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 17, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some time ago, I remember having a conversation with a Christian living in a country where believers in Jesus are openly being persecuted. You know, we were discussing what causes hatred against believers, and he said to me, you know, on the one hand, we threaten no one. We don't seek the overthrow of the government. We're committed to praying for the government. We seek the good welfare of our nation. We, we strive to forgive our enemies and do good to those who persecute us. He went on to tell me that there were forces in his country that were seeking a violent overthrow, but that the Christians in his nation would have nothing to do with that. We were like Daniel, he said, seeking the good of the nation. But as we continued to talk, we both came to the conclusion that, indeed, the Christian faith posed a great threat to that nation. Unlike the radical forces that took up arms, the government had no tools to resist the advance of the Christian faith. I mean, how do you resist the power of love or or the message of a Christ who gave up his life? Or how do you resist those who think that death is no threat, who carry on their faith no matter what? There really is no greater threat to Satan's kingdom than the power of Christ's redeeming love. And so Satan has two weapons in his arsenal, weapons he wields against the church of Jesus. The first is persecution from without, and the second, heresy from within. Today, we'll consider the threat of persecution from without. We've been studying Revelation chapter 6 to 12, and we've noticed that this section of Scripture begins with the breaking of seven seals that will open the book that brings about the day of the Lord and the reign of the kingdom of God. Christ is pictured as holding the scroll, and very deliberately, he's breaking the seals. The book is not open until all seven seals are broken. The first four seals represents the time between Christ's ascension and the second coming of Jesus. This will be a time when the gospel continues to to forcefully advance in the world in an evil world. War, scarcity, bloodshed are the backdrop in which Christ's gospel is being preached. And when the fifth seal is broken, we're called upon to picture the blowback, if you will, to the preaching of the gospel in a a ruined and fallen world. So I'm reading Revelation 6, verses 9 to 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Let's pay attention to some of the details of this paragraph. First, allow your mind to be taken up in the altar under which the souls of the martyrs lie. You know, the Old Testament tabernacle had both an altar of incense as well as an altar of sacrifice. Now, this altar in Revelation seems to most closely represent the altar of sacrifice. In the book of Leviticus, Moses describes that in great detail, the actual sacrifice of animals to be given up in worship, along with the pouring out of the blood of those animals to be poured out at the base of the altar. The blood of those animals would run down the altar and be pooled at the base of the altar before it would flow from the altar. Now, this language of blood sacrifice on the altar is the language that the New Testament borrows not only when referring to Christ's death on our behalf, but also the death of the martyrs. As an example, 
when Paul writes the church in the Greek city of Philippi, he's then in prison in Rome. He's awaiting his trial before Caesar's tribunal. And following his trial, he's either going to be released or immediately taken out and beheaded. And here's what he writes. I'm reading Philippians 2, verse 17. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Now, do you see, Paul views his potential martyrdom as a sacrificial offering offered up in thanksgiving to God. Now, that's not the only time that he speaks that way. In 2 Timothy, Paul's again standing trial, and this time he knows with certainty that, that he is going to be condemned to die. So, I'm reading 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. There he writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now, in Revelation, we're not supposed to imagine that in some fashion the martyrs are being housed in some chamber under the altar. But we are to imagine that their martyrdom is an offering laid up on the altar of sacrifice, a sweet-smelling savor to God, if you will. This picture is a symbolic representation of what their death represents. Their blood has run under the altar, and their sacrifice has been found acceptable to God. See, I think that in our day, we've forgotten the special place, the place of honor that God has assigned to the martyrs. You know, when I was a boy, one of the songs that we sang in church and worship was the song, Holy God, We Praise Your Name. It was written by Ignace Franz in 1774. In the third line, as we were in full praise to God, we sang of those examples that we followed when we praised God. The third line read, Lo, the apostolic train, join the sacred name to hallow. Prophets swell with loud refrain, and the white-robed martyrs follow. And from morn to set of sun, through the church, the song goes on. And as we sang, we realized that right after the apostles and the prophets came the place of honor that Christ has afforded to his martyrs. And that's exactly how Revelation reads. As the gospel goes forward in a world wrecked by great power struggles and wars and human greed and sin of every kind, the impact of the gospel will mean that those who proclaim it will sometimes do so at the cost of their lives. Hence, says Revelation, their place in history will always be that they are seen as those whose sacrifice is a sweet-smelling savor before the throne of God. But what happens next in our scene in Revelation is surprising to some. We think of Jesus praying for those who are nailing him to a cross, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or we might think of the first Christian martyr, who is Stephen. With his dying breath, he calls out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So how is it then that these martyrs are crying out to God that that he should avenge their blood? Well, for one, please notice that when Cain killed his brother Abel, that God himself said to Cain, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. And furthermore, Jesus himself taught in Luke 18, verse 7, and I quote, and will not God bring justice to his elect who cry out to him day and night? See, my understanding of the martyr's prayer is, is not that they're looking for personal vengeance, but that they're crying out for justice, for the vindication of God's purposes, for God's demonstration of his love for his elect who have been treated as criminals on the earth. They long for the day when God's kingdom reigns and the day of evil is forever vanquished and evildoers themselves must stand before the bar of God's justice. Now, before we move on, 
please notice that their cry to God, they cry out, Oh, sovereign Lord. Two words in English, sovereign Lord. It's one word in the Greek. God, the one who cannot tolerate evil, the one who controls all things, is called upon to break the remaining seals and usher in his reign of righteousness. And in response to their prayer, they're told to do two things. And we who watch this scene should do the same. The first is that they're told to rest a little longer. Another way of putting this is that they are to patiently wait for the unfolding of God's plan. Think of what this meant for the seven churches who heard this message. See, in the present hour, things really did look difficult. The storm clouds of persecution and public disfavor for the church seem to be on the rise. How long, O Lord, they cry out. And the answer must come from heaven, given to the white-robed martyrs, to their present experience. Rest a little longer. Patiently wait for God to act. And then the second thing that the martyrs must do. They are to wait until the number of their fellow servants have been killed for the gospel. Let me put that another way. They are to wait until the full number of the martyrs have laid down their lives for the gospel. They are to wait until the full sacrifice has been laid upon the altar. For the reality is this, not only a full number of the elect that will be called home, but a full number of those who have been given the honor of laying down their lives for the gospel of Jesus. You know, that great train began with Stephen, and it was carried on with Peter, with Paul. It went on through the seven churches and down to the present day when the beauty and loveliness of the sacrifice of the martyrs, of those who count Jesus and his gospel more precious than life, all of those will be counted. They are a testimony in this sin-sick world that there are those who have counted the gospel and the image of Jesus more precious than life itself. Their witness continues on until their full number are called home. Indeed, as the hymn writer who saw the great train of those who had been given a special honor in the kingdom said, and the white robe martyrs followed. The Back to the Bible ministry team met to discuss in simple terms what this ministry is all about. Well, here's what was determined. We teach the Bible. That's it. Bible teaching that others would come to know and grow in Christ. Our world, country, communities, and neighbors need to hear the good news, and we're relentlessly committed to that purpose. We're praying that you'll stand with us. This June, we're asking you to help us to reach our goal of $338,000. Now, that's a significant goal, but together, it's achievable. This month, a group of friends have committed to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $75,000. So take advantage of this great opportunity. Double your impact as together we teach the Bible. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. In our study of Revelation, we have come now to one of the fascinating divides in the book and one that will require us as we read to ponder what it is that we've just read. See, up till now, we have followed the breaking of the seals in anticipation of the opening of the scroll, the scroll which marks the revelation of the day of the Lord. 
We've pointed out that Jesus' early statements in the Olivet Discourse very closely parallels the breaking of the seven seals. But it's the sixth seal that will make us wonder, you know, what's just happened? Well, let's read Revelation 6, 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Now let me say it because I'm assuming that this is exactly what everyone's thinking. This description sounds like the end of the world. We might be able to get by the earthquake, but since this earthquake corresponds with stars falling from the sky and the sky is removed from its place and every mountain and island on earth is being removed and the rulers of the earth are suddenly struck with the inescapable reality, all this phenomenon comes from the wrath of the one who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Well, what else are we to conclude but that Jesus has appeared in the sky and that his appearance marks the end of the present era? Indeed, this is not the only place in the Bible that speaks of the end of the earth in this way. I mean, listen to Joel chapter 2, verse 31. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Or listen to Isaiah chapter 13, 9 to 11. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. Indeed, Jesus himself seems to speak exactly this way. Back in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, verses 29 to 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And so with the breaking of the sixth seal in Revelation, and just before the seventh seal, and just before we would anticipate the opening of the scroll of destiny, the scroll in which wickedness comes to an end and the kingdom of God is established on earth and the Lamb of God takes its place on David's ancient throne and rules forever. I mean, before all that drama, that is, before the scroll is even opened, it seems as if we're standing at the end of the world. And that leads us to wonder what's going on. And we've been led to expect a certain sequence, but at least at first reading, the sequence is broken. The world ends. And then... As we will continue to read Revelation, we're going to again be introduced to woes and the rise of evil and all manner of things that speak of the fact that the world didn't come to an end. I mean, after all, again, we're left to ponder what exactly is going on here. For some Bible teachers, Revelation should not be read in a linear fashion. See, for them, the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets, then followed by the pouring out of seven bowls of wrath, well, all of these events are simply looking at the same phenomenon over and over again from a different perspective. 
See, for them, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, all of these things happen simultaneously. They all happen at the same time. So from my reading of Revelation, I don't think that's right. As we continue our study, I'm going to make the case that the seven trumpets follow the seven seals chronologically. That is, only after the seventh seal is broken do we actually move to the next event, and the next event is the seven trumpets. See, one of the reasons I think that's the case is because the seeming end of the world doesn't happen after the seventh seal is broken, but after the sixth seal is broken. We would expect the end after the seventh seal, but that's not how Revelation reads. Secondly, when we finally get to Revelation chapter 8 and read about the seven trumpets, we're going to find out that the seven trumpets are not like the seals at all. I mean, you can't lay out the seven seals on half of a page for study, and then on the other half of the page, lay out the seven trumpets and see how they correspond to each other, because they don't. And all of that to say that we're left with a puzzle. What happens when Jesus, the Lamb of God, breaks the sixth seal in preparation for opening the scroll of destiny? Well, clearly, with the sixth seal, the scroll is not yet broken. What we're waiting for is the seventh seal and the opening of the book. See, I think the answer to what's going on here is a great drama that must not be missed. In the Old Testament, the expression, the day of the Lord, that expression that that speaks about everything from great cosmic disturbances to the judgment of the wicked, to the descent of the Messiah, to the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth, I mean, all of that stuff is not presented as a singular one-day event. The day of the Lord is not a 24-hour day. Rather, the day of the Lord actually encompasses a period of time. Let me explain that by looking at New Testament parallels. You know, first, from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to quickly be shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now, here we see that the day of the Lord is preceded by a series of great wicked events, including the rise of Antichrist, and the church is not to assume that the day arrives until he comes first. Now, to Romans 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself, says Paul, on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now there, clearly, wrath is a part of the day of the Lord. Now to Ephesians 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now here we see the day of the Lord referred to not as a day of wrath, but as a day of redemption. And what I mean to point out is that the day of the Lord encompasses a wide and a vast sequence of events. From the beginning of unparalleled evil to the outpouring of God's anger, to the final coming of Christ, to the throne of judgment and the redeeming of God's people, I mean, all of that makes the day of the Lord. It's it's this large and wide package. And so if the breaking of the sixth seal signals that the day of the Lord is at hand, John rightly describes the convulsing of the earth and sees already the beginning of the day of the Lord. 
Now, he's right in describing the end of the world, for even though when the scroll is opened, the world does not end at that very moment, yet when the scroll is opened, the day of the Lord has arrived. Now, we could think of the opening of the scroll very much in terms of the visions that the prophet Daniel saw when in Daniel 9, he spoke of 70 weeks followed by a time of the end when war and desolations are decreed. Or we would think of it very much like what many of us today think about the Great Tribulation. But we must include not only the rise of Antichrist and of great wickedness, but we must also include in it the pouring out of God's anger on the kingdom of the beast and the return of Christ on the establishment of the kingdom of God. See, when the scroll is opened, all of history now moves quickly and unstoppably to one great moment that the earth will be full of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And so, As the Lord of glory, the lamb that was slain, the the lion of the tribe of Judah breaks the sixth seal and all of history stands at the precipice of destiny, all of creation is in upheaval and John pictures the very end of the world. And this, hope in the midst of upheaval is the strength of the church of Jesus Christ. See, we do not fear the fingers of Christ as they are slowly and relentlessly breaking the seals. Rather, we anticipate the day of the Lord. We anticipate the final victory and the triumph of the Lamb. John, this month is so important to the ministry financially. It's our fiscal year end, and we have a significant goal of $338,000. I know the goal is reachable, but not without folks who share the same heart and passion for the mission of Back to the Bible Canada. Now, it wasn't that long ago, a number of the ministry team gathered together around a table and began to talk about how we would express this ministry in its purest, most direct form. And what we came up with is, at first glimpse, might seem shockingly obvious, but it really does hit the target. It's simply this. We teach the Bible. Now, here's my question. Is that too simple? What do you think? I think it's profound. I I love that. We teach the Bible. In the end, I think what we're saying as an entire ministry, we have nothing else to say. We think that God has given us a message in Scripture, and the more we get to know that text, the more we understand it thoroughly and continue to walk with that thing and communicate it well. If we do that one thing, we're communicating the most important thing that this country and this world needs to hear. You know, I was with a friend of ours, Brian, and he was telling me the other day, one of the things he appreciated so much about your teaching is this, and I'm just going to quote him. He says, I love how John gets out of the way and allows the Bible to speak for itself. That's critically important to you, isn't it? Yeah, that's a real compliment. I really took that to heart. And I do want to you know, pray to the Lord. Lord, may I always get out of the way so that your word would be front and center. So why do you think that's so important for people to understand that that's the sort of the approach we take? Yeah, we do verse-by-verse Bible teaching. We try to understand a book within its context. We want to understand what it meant to its original hearers. Once we understand that, we'll apply it to our day. So we're rejecting a super-spiritualized approach. We're taking the plain meaning of the text. That's the only way we're supposed to understand the text. So, you know, from my vantage point, Ben, if we don't do that thing, if we don't explain the text as it was written, verse-by-verse, carefully, you know, we won't be communicating the Word. 
Thanks so much, John. And please help us with our fiscal year-end goal in the month of June. You can call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, we teach the Bible.